Hello, comrades, and welcome to the Sunflower Socialist Podcast. I apologize for my long hiatus. I know I enter almost every episode talking about it because my life has just been so insane, but it's been a big change for me recently. I now have fully moved out of Kansas. I'm no longer even in the Midwest. I'm now living in Maine in New England. So things have just been very complicated in my life right now, but I'm glad to finally be back to podcasting and talking to all of you. But let's not talk about me. It's now been just under a month since the Taliban retook Kabul and reproclaimed the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan in the wake of the U.S. and allied withdrawal from the country. Over 100,000 refugees have been airlifted out of the country. There's been protests that have erupted in many major Afghan cities against the new regime, and there's just a lot of unanswered questions still. What will the new government actually look like? What will this mean for women's rights? What will this mean for Afghanistan's relations with the rest of the world? And there aren't really any clear answers to any of these questions, and I'm not going to claim that I can sit here and provide those answers, because I am not an expert on Afghanistan. I do not speak their languages. I do not, you know, I've never been there. I cannot answer those questions. But what I want to talk about instead is why this happened, and this is what is really important here. I think we need to start off from the beginning that this war, the U.S. war in Afghanistan, was doomed to end this way from the outset. The war in Afghanistan was a quagmire from the beginning, and this really couldn't have ended any other way. It's just the reality of the situation on the ground there was totally at odds with whatever we thought we were doing there, and it seems most of the time we really didn't even know what we were doing there. The fact that anyone thought this was going to end any other way just shows how incompetent most of our leaders, most of our so-called experts and so-called leaders really are when it comes to these crucial matters. And really, the only one who was right about Afghanistan the entire time was U.S. Congresswoman Barbara Lee, who, as far as I'm concerned, the only person I want to hear any analysis or hot takes on Afghanistan from is Barbara Lee, because she was right about this from the beginning. She was the only one who said, let's not go to war in Afghanistan in you know, in the wake of this tragedy, I understand why people want to go to war, but we have to consider the ramifications of doing it. These are the ramifications that Barbara Lee was warning us about back in 2001, and we ignored her. Congress ignored her. She got called un-American and treasonous for it, but in reality, she was the only one that was right. And that's the absurd thing about all of this, is we didn't heed that warning then, and now we are reaping the consequences, but we don't have to reap those consequences directly. The United States never has to reap the consequences of its imperial disasters itself. Who has to reap those consequences? The people of Afghanistan do. And moreover, from virtually the minute the first bombs dropped on Afghanistan back in 2001, we were already dealing with a fundamental problem of what the war was even all about to begin with. When it started, you know, the war was all about defeat, you know, destroying Al-Qaeda, getting Osama bin Laden, and the other perpetrators of 9-11. That's what the war was about initially. But what has it, what did it become after that? And then we get into this whole concept of mission creep, that over time, the, you know, the goals and objectives of the mission, of the conflict, keep changing. And this effectively allows governments to continue these wars in perpetuity. And that's what we were doing in Afghanistan. This was the longest war in U.S. history, but what was it all about? The beginning mission of gaining Osama bin Laden. Okay, sure, we took out most of al-Qaeda's training camps, and we finally got bin Laden in 2011. Then what was the war about from then on? You know? And what was the point of the troop surge in 
fulfilling that mission of getting the perpetrators of 9-11 and stopping Al-Qaeda, destroying Al-Qaeda. Well, there wasn't any point to having all those troops in there just to go after one guy and a few others. There was no purpose to all of these forces that we had there, so we had to change what the goal of our imperial occupation of Afghanistan was all about. So it became about nation-building, or it became about counterterrorism, or it became about security. It All of these different changes and frameworks and it just the mission just kept creeping and creeping away from what it was originally all about and all this did was to benefit US empire and the military industrial complex and that's all that the war really became about in the end it was never this lofty goal of you know getting justice for the victims of 9/11 no it just became another imperial quagmire for the united states and the military industrial complex to expand its reach and make money off of that's what the war in Afghanistan was all about. And that ultimately is what sowed the seeds of our failure in Afghanistan. And a lot of this really has to do with the government the United States set up and propped up in Afghanistan and the endemic corruption that we engendered as a result of our our actions and our occupation there. And I'm not saying that the U.S. is totally at fault for all the corruption and stuff there. That would be to let the corrupt politicians and officials and warlords in Afghanistan off the hook for their role in it. But when we look at what the United States had done there, we had basically set up just a puppet regime. You know, we hadn't actually set up a real government rooted in the Afghan people, despite having elections and stuff. We really had only set up a puppet government for the United States to advance its interest and secure the mission, however that mission was by that point being defined, in Afghanistan. And so by 2021, you had a situation in which you had a government which was plagued by endemic corruption that was built basically to serve the interests of a foreign occupying imperial power and a population that generally didn't trust their government, especially in the rural countryside. And so what is going to happen? That government's not going to last. And I really want to emphasize this point about corruption that the United States you know, facilitated for years in this conflict and in this country. We did not do really much of anything to undermine corruption that was such a huge problem in Afghanistan and allowed it to continue for years on end and in many ways get worse and if not even were active participants in it because we really created extra financial incentives for corrupt warlords, corrupt politicians, corrupt military officials to basically milk the United States for money because we would give it to them because we thought it would advance our geopolitical interests and the interests of the military-industrial complex. If you look at this whole phenomenon that went on in Afghanistan, which was a major reason for why the Afghan military collapsed so rapidly in the face of the Taliban's offensive, there was this whole phenomenon of ghost soldiers and that, and even ghost battalions, where you would have a military official who would say he actually had this many troops, you know, and then he would be issued with food and weapons and materials for those non-existent troops. And so he would get all this equipment, and then what would he do with it? Well, he'd then sell it. You know, he'd sell it on the black market and make and pocket the cash for himself. And even with the equipment that should have been going to his own troops, was also being pocketed by these military commanders or these politicians or these warlords. And so you have soldiers that aren't being paid, that are poor, poorly equipped despite billions of dollars of U.S. military hardware being given to them, and who are not being well-fed either. And so when it comes time to face the enemy they're not going to want to fight anymore because they are 
supposedly well equipped, but they don't have these weapons they've been promised. They haven't been paid. They aren't being fed well. So they're not going to want to fight against an insurgent army that is moving rapidly towards them. They're going to turn tail and hide, not because they're cowards, but because they're not stupid. You know, they knew that they couldn't fight against the Taliban's onslaught and that they, you know, had no real reason to fight. They hadn't been paid. They weren't being equipped. And it was largely thanks to the U.S. facilitating this kind of corruption that this phenomenon was allowed to even happen. For all the boasting that Biden and all, every other president has done about how well we had equipped the Afghan military, when you actually looked at the equipment that we were giving them, or that was being purchased with the money we were giving them, it was crap. Because these corrupt politicians and corrupt officials were pocketing that money, and we encouraged, we tacitly encouraged that really by never addressing the problem, and because it would in turn make us more money for the military-industrial complex and continue to secure our interests in the region. You know, that was a major factor in leading to the Taliban's ultimate victory in Afghanistan. And I should probably also note that these, you know, corrupt officials that were basically taking this hardware and then selling it to enrich themselves, guess who was buying a lot of that hardware that we had provided to the Afghan military? It was the Taliban. You know, they, were, they didn't capture all that hardware. They had purchased it from corrupt officials who were selling it to pocket money for themselves. So you have this situation where you have a corrupt government, corrupt military, corrupt everything that is also basically a puppet for a foreign occupying power. People aren't going to want to trust that government. And in particular, in the rural parts of Afghanistan, you had this situation in which the central government in Kabul was not very present. You know, they weren't the main providers of social services and social welfare and, you know, security in the area. So guess who wound up filling that void? The Taliban did. You know, they were able to fill the void in rural parts of Afghanistan, which had long been a key source of their strength, and really make inroads there, develop community networks, get support, and then say, look at that government in Kabul. They're just foreign puppets, and they're corrupt. Meanwhile, look at us. We're here. We're doing these things for you. Who should you trust? Well, people are going to want to trust the guys who are there present doing things for them. And that's, you know, how they took the countryside so quickly. And then when you have this inept, toothless puppet government that is mired in corruption, you're not, they're not going to be able to stand up when you have a force that is coming out of the countryside that is much stronger in terms of its relations with the community outside of the major cities, admittedly. But in the rural areas, the, Af the Taliban had pretty significant support. And so now... They're going in with a large force and this government, that a military that exists largely of ghost battalions, and they're going to fall right away. And this really comes back again to the U.S. involvement and U.S. policies that enabled all of this to happen. You know, and then you hear in the American press and in the American pundit, the, among the American punditry, they're trying to assign blame to this. Some are saying, oh, it's Biden's fault. He drew out too quickly or didn't think through withdrawal well enough or oh it's trump's fault because he made the agreement with the taliban and it's just no they're the fault does not belong to any one person the fault belongs to the entire u.s imperial military apparatus and to the military industrial complex and this includes the last four presidents this the fault of this goes to biden to trump to obama and uh, probably most importantly to bush who got us into this dumb war in the first place that we should never have gone into. Now, Afghanistan's long been known as the graveyard of empires because it's been a place where empires have tried to take over the country, secure it, control it, whatever, and they often meet their defeat, if not their demise there. The British Empire failed to control Afghanistan. The Soviet Union tried to control Afghanistan. The Mughals tried to control Afghanistan. All failed. 
now the United States has failed, and I hope that the Graveyard of Empire's name is taken to heart by many here in the United States, and we recognize that we should leave the U.S. Empire in its grave in Afghanistan. We should not attempt to engage in any more of these fruitless imperial wars that bring nothing but suffering and misery to millions around the world. But I don't think that's going to happen, and instead people are saying that the issue wasn't U.S. imperialism. Instead, they're saying, oh, the problem was we needed to stay in longer. That's what we're hearing from a lot of the punditry, is that Biden shouldn't have pulled us out. And we're hearing this so much from, you know, especially from the right, but also from some liberals as well. And it's ridiculous. The lesson here should not be that we need to stay in longer. It was that we needed to get out. We should never have gone in in the first place, and we need to get out at the first chance we got because it was always going to end this way. Now, let's be clear, though. There definitely were specific failures in how the U.S. withdrew from this conflict. In particular, the years that the United States has failed to bring translators and other contractors in Afghanistan, people who supported allied forces in Afghanistan, and get them out of the country as we withdrew. We failed in that endeavor. And this comes in large part from incompetence in Congress and in the White House that they were constantly trying to delay or avoid this problem altogether. And instead, what we have had a situation now is where you had thousands of people rushing to Kabul airport, trying to get out of the country, trying to get aboard the planes by climbing onto the wheels and falling to their deaths because they were desperate to get out of this country because we failed them. We should have evacuated them before we were even evacuating our own troops, but we didn't. We did abandon people in Afghanistan that should not have been abandoned. You know, and that's not for me making an argument that we should have stayed there longer or anything. As I have said repeatedly, we should have never gone in in the first place, and once we did go in, we should have gotten out of there as quickly as we possibly could have from the first day we were there. But we could have withdrawn in a way that actually prioritized the people who had helped our occupation and gotten them to safety well before we had removed all our troops from Afghanistan, as we did, and they were put into harm's way. We should have predicted that this was going to happen and that these people were going to be in extreme danger, and now they are. We have airlifted 122,000 people out of Afghanistan now, and the mission is technically over, but there are still going to be thousands more who are going to be trying to flee that country in the coming months and years. That's the reality of the situation here. We abandoned people to their fate. We said, thanks so much for your help. Bye. We should have done more to help these people, and now I strongly encourage everyone here to advocate on behalf of Afghan refugees. We need to tell this government they need to admit as many Afghan refugees as we possibly can, because they face an uncertain future in their own country, and we can offer them a safe place here in the United States or in other Western European countries. We have a moral obligation to help refugees, and we ought to do it now. Meanwhile, we're already seeing from the right, especially from Tucker Carlson, that they're already trying to fight against refugee resettlement here in the United States of Afghan refugees. And it's ridiculous. Tucker Carlson was saying, uh, and by the way, Tucker Carlson, fascist, but he was saying, oh, well, first we invaded them and now they're invading us. And it's, no, they're not invading us. We are not being invaded. We invaded them and then we left them to die. We have a moral obligation to help every Afghan refugee and help them find a place here in the United States, resettle them, and provide them with a safe and secure future here in the United States. We owe that to these Afghan refugees. 
we are the ones who destroyed their country, and now they are having to pay for the out for the outcome of it. We are not the victims here. They are the victims, and we must help them. End of story. So, f*** you, Tucker Carlson, and every anti-refugee reactionary prick. As for what's going to happen next, I don't really have any answers. You know, there is going to be a lot of uncertainty in the future with Afghanistan and for the people of Afghanistan, and I don't know what the Taliban's government's going to look like, what the situation on the ground is going to look like, although I'm hearing very disturbing reports already. But fundamentally, for us here at home, we need to be, you know, remembering what has happened here in Afghanistan and the failure of Afghanistan. And remember that this is what happens when empires run amok. You know, this is the results of imperialism that happens virtually every time. And we need to really demand the U.S. end its imperial ambitions, that it must end these pointless forever wars, and realize the consequences that come from the U.S. doing things like this. That's what we must remember from all this, and we cannot allow ourselves to be dragged into another pointless forever war like the war in Afghanistan. It's time that we say no more to these wars, and it's time that we say the United States needs to get out of Yemen, you know, we need to get out of, you know, all of these conflicts around the world, and we need to say very clearly, we are not okay with any more of these wars and these conflicts that only serve the interests of the imperial state apparatuses and the military-industrial complex, because it does not serve our interests. It's, these wars do not advance the interests of the United States. They don't make us safer. They don't make the world more peaceful. They don't do anything for our lives except line the pockets of the military-industrial complex and advance an imperial agenda around the world. And we need to say enough. Period. We are done with these wars. That's what we need to be taking away from this. So moving on now from Afghanistan, let's talk about Canada. If you didn't know, Canada is having a little snap election that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau called at a time literally nobody wanted to have an election given they're in the fourth wave of the COVID pandemic and they just voted two years prior, so no one wanted to have this election to begin with. But the idea Trudeau had going in was that he'd be able to increase his number of seats because he was currently leading a minority government and it wasn't working out for him. He wanted to increase his own hand in parliament. But it may have slightly backfired on him. And in polls up until today it appeared that he was actually going to come in second in the votes to the conservatives, and the conservatives might actually be set to take the minority government seat from Justin Trudeau's liberals. Now, this was pretty embarrassing for Trudeau. Now, his numbers have popped back up a little bit, but not by much, and it seems like he's just going to, at best case scenario, hold steady to where he is, and other parties, namely the conservatives, and more importantly, the NDP, the left-wing party, are going to pop up. Now, if anyone follows me on social media or knows me personally, they know that I definitely support the NDP. I was a guest at the 2018 NDP convention, and I strongly support the NDP, uh, the only real Labour Party in North America. And so I strongly encourage any of my Canadian listeners to vote for the NDP. Now, the election is seven days away from when I am recording this. I'm recording this on the 13th of September. Obviously, the best case scenario here is the NDP gains a lot more seats because they're not going to gain the government. They're only pulling around 20% right now, which is an increase from the 16% they were at after the last election. This is definitely good, but given Canada's first-past-the-post system, will this actually translate into seats? Eh, it's very hard to say. 
The first-past-the-post system is an abysmal electoral system, as I have discussed on this podcast previously. I am very much an advocate for proportional representation, and I would strongly encourage Canada to adopt this immediately, if if not sooner. But it is actually worth mentioning that in the first term the Liberals had, when they gained power back in 2015, they actually promised that it would be the last election that would take place using the first-past-the-post system. Canada is now on its second election since the 2015 elections, and they still have first-past-the-post. And that really should tell you something about the Liberals. They say all they want in the election campaign, and they do nothing. They run to the left, and then they govern to the right. It's like Liberals always do, and that's why you got to vote NDP. Now, I will say, I do have my criticisms of the NDP. Particularly, I wish they would move more to the left. I wish they would embrace more overtly socialist policies and be more aggressive in their advocacy of them. But in terms of what Canada has, they are by far the absolute best party that Canada has got. And I hope that in the next 20 years or so, Canada will have an NDP-led government. And I hope that NDP can come back from this kind of malaise they've had where they're no longer as large as they were back in 2007 when they were actually the official opposition in the Canadian Parliament under Jack Layton. But since then, they have declined under Tom Mulcair, who was an abysmal leader. They just plummeted as the Liberals gained trying to take out the Conservatives led by then led by Stephen Harper. And I strongly hope that Jugmeet Singh will be able to do this as leader of the NDP. I have some criticisms of Jugmeet's leadership. I personally did not endorse Jugmeet in the leadership election. I personally gave my backing to Nikki Ashton, and my second choice in that leadership election would have gone to Charlie Angus. However, I think that Jugmeet has done a very good job as leader so far. He has the charisma to be an effective leader in Canadian politics, which is very leader-focused, and I think that's a good thing for them. It's hard to say if the NDP will actually be able to take formal government or have government ministers or anything. Coalition governments are exceptionally rare in Canadian politics, at least at the federal level, and no party has actually really governed Canada apart from the Liberal Party or the Conservative Party, or at least the Conservative Party's predecessors. It's very unheard of for anyone but them to govern at the federal level. Now, at the provincial level, the NDP actually does hold uh, government in British Columbia, and they have previously had government in Alberta and in Ontario. So, you know, they have definitely strong provincial support. The problem with the NDP is they're not as big a nationwide force as the Liberals or the Conservatives, just historically. Now, there was a period during the 2000s when the NDP actually became the official opposition in Parliament, overtaking the Liberals for the first time in history, and I believe it was two elections. Now, they didn't win. Stephen Harper of the Conservatives became the governing party, and Jack Lay- but Jack Layton's leadership had caused the NDP to gain so many seats, and it was a massive triumph for them. Since then, they have lost. They lost a lot of seats in the 2015 election to the Liberals, and they dropped a few more seats in the last election in 2019, but I think they're on the verge of gaining back quite a few seats, and I think this is for two main reasons. One, the NDP is running very firmly, and they always have, to the left of the Liberals. And this is poising them to take quite a few votes from disaffected progressive voters who would otherwise be voting for the Liberals, voting strategically or all of that nonsense. And they have been very disappointed by the lack of action from the Liberal Party on all their promises. The Liberals promised electoral reform. They failed that in both terms. They promised action on climate change, but meanwhile, Trudeau has basically bent over backwards for the fossil fuel industry. That's not going to win a lot of electoral support. The other thing that is going for them is the collapse in the Green Party in Canada. Now, in the last election, the Green Party surged in support. They only gained three seats in the parliament. But 
they have recently come into some massive issues. After the last election, the Green Party's leader, longtime leader Elizabeth May, who is quite nutty if you ask me, stepped down. And in the ensuing electoral battle, there was a lot of nonsense that went on. People accused May of interfering in the election and trying to make it so her preferred candidates would hold power, giving her more influence in the party as opposed to a left-wing challenger. And ultimately, this caused a massive row in the party. The election for Green Party leader ultimately went to Annamie Paul over Dimitri Lascaris, who was running as an eco-socialist, essentially, while Paul was running as more or less of a centrist. And she's really campaigned as that in this recent electoral campaign. She's basically been saying, what if we could be both the liberals and the NDP at the same time? And it's really failed her in a lot of ways. The internal party issues have only gotten worse since she has taken over. Uh, in particular, over a rollover, one of her advisors said that he wanted to only nominate hardline pro-Israel Zionist to Green Party nominations, and this really caused a massive uproar within the Green Party, many of whom are very much pro-Palestine. And meanwhile, the NDP embraced at their last convention a pro-Palestine resolution. So this has caused a lot of benefit for the NDP over the Greens, who took some NDP votes at the last election. That's worth acknowledging. So I think these factors are going very well, but then the bigger thing is, going back to the liberals, is no one wanted this election to begin with. This election was not wanted. It was called for purely political reasons. Everyone thinks it's totally pointless that they're even having it, and they are saying, if the liberals are going to call a pointless election, I'm not going to vote for the liberals. So who are they voting for instead? They're voting for the conservatives or they're voting for the NDP, because those are the real alternatives to the liberal party. And this actually was what led in large part to the rise of the conservative party earlier in the election campaign. They've kind of gone back and forth with the liberals since then. The liberals are back up a bit. But their new leader of the conservative party, Aaron O'Toole, is basically in their electoral, in their leadership election, he kind of was representing the let's just keep things where they are. Let's not move too far to the right or back to the center. Uh, and he has kind of tried to pitch himself as the pro-blue-collar guy in the election, and that is concerning because he's making a lot of pledges that we know the conservatives will never keep. They never keep any pro-working-class promises because they're not a working-class party, and although they are clearly lying through their teeth, it's benefiting them so far, although it may not benefit them on election day due to some controversies that have arisen around the conservative party stances on things like guns. So... That is an issue, and also, at the same time, we're seeing these more far-right parties, in particular the People's Party of Canada, which is a far-right national conservative party led by this former conservative parliamentarian, Maxime Bernier, who they seem to be picking up a little bit of steam as well, and that's coming exclusively at the cost of the conservatives, and they're running basically as trying to appeal to the anti-vaxxer crowd, the far-right anti-immigrant crowd in Western Canada. So that's what uh, the People's Party of Canada is doing, while the Conservatives are trying to appeal to both their traditional right-wing electorate and also kind of win over some liberal, maybe NDP voting types as well. And it had been working, but it seems that it has ceased to work as effectively as they had thought it would. So that has definitely cost the Conservative Party a little bit of support uh, in the recent weeks. But things are still neck and neck. I'm scrolling back to the latest polls on here. Uh, the Conservative Party, as of now, is... Run As of the latest polls from yesterday, the day before I recorded it, the polls are for 30.2% for the Conservative Party, 33.2% for the Liberal Party, 18.6% for the NDP. And then there's also another party I haven't talked about, which is the Bloc Québécois, which is a Quebec-only party. They're sovereigntists. They ultimately want Quebec to be independent. 
Uh, that's all there really is to it. They were much bigger in the 1990s when Quebec actually had their uh, independence referendum, which narrowly failed. And they've stagnated a little bit since then. And then, of course, the Green Party, uh, who are getting 3.8%, and the People's Party, who were so low in the pre-election polls that they did not even qualify for the debates, are now up to 6.6%. And in the poll that was came out the exact same day as this one that I'm referencing, they actually had up to 8.4%. So they're going between you know 5% and 9% in the polls over the last week. So they are really on the rise, and that seems to be coming exclusively at the cost of the conservatives, who have since lost their decisive edge against the liberals who are now leading in more polls than they were the week before. So, yeah, this is going to be a very interesting election, but again, it's an election nobody wanted. Uh, so that's just kind of embarrassing for the liberal party that they're head, they hedged their bets on trying to call this snap election to increase their majority, but now it looks like they're either going to hold steady or they may actually lose seats, if not the government itself. So talk about embarrassing for the liberal party and talk about a disaster in strategic planning there for the liberals. They are not looking too well. They are losing votes to both the conservatives and the NDP, and it's not going to go far too well for them in the end. Again, I just want to reiterate, if you are a Canadian listener, I strongly implore you to vote for the NDP. They are the only real progressive workers' party in Canada, and while they have their issues on a few things, they're the only choice that anyone who cares about things like the climate, like workers' rights like First Nations people, they're the only party that is advocating for these issues, apart from the Greens who say they are, but the Greens are utterly pointless at this point. They're losing votes at this point. So, really, the only choice you've got is the NDP. So vote NDP if you are in Canada. And I especially want to shout out a few candidates, of course, Nikki Ashton and Charlie Angus, who I mentioned earlier. They're incumbents. I highly encourage people living in those writings to re-elect them. But then there is also another candidate I want to highlight who may surprise some listeners— and that is Avi Lewis, who is the husband of Naomi Klein and the co-author of the Leap Manifesto that they both authored on the climate crisis and you know, effectively creating a justice-centered climate solutions that centered working people and indigenous people in an immediate and rapid shift away from fossil fuels to rapidly address the climate crisis. And he is running in the writing of, let me just double-check the exact writing here, uh, it is the writing of Van West Vancouver, Sunshine Coast, Sea to Sky Country. Wow, Canada, talk about long writing names. You really got to shorten them. But he is an incredible candidate, and I strongly encourage anyone living in that writing to vote for him or campaign for him because he would be a great guy in Parliament. Now, I admit he does have a tough road ahead of him. This is not a writing the NDP has done particularly well in. They came in fourth in this writing at the last election. Uh, behind the Greens with only 13.89%, and it is a liberal riding with the Conservatives in second place fairly consistently. But I still think it's a he's a very good candidate, and I hope that he gets a lot of votes, because those are votes that are very clear. We want the policies in the Leap Manifesto, and we want the NDP to fully pursue these policies, and for the Liberals to get off their butts and enact them as well. That's what it is. And I also should point out that Avi Lewis, he's a very interesting character. He's a filmmaker. He's an activist in his own right. Not just, you know, noteworthy for his wife, obviously, but he's also the son of Stephen Lewis, the former leader of the NDP in Ontario, and the grandson of David Lewis, the former leader of the federal NDP, uh, who succeeded NDP founder Tommy Douglas when Tommy Douglas retired. And if you don't know who Tommy Douglas is, he's the reason Canada has health care. So... Yeah, this is just some interesting stuff I really wanted to point out on here as well. But I strongly support the NDP, and the liberals are idiots. 
that's the only point I want to make on this one. So yeah, best of luck to the NDP. Hope that it goes well, and uh, solidarity with the people of Afghanistan as well. Uh, times are going to be very tough there, and I hope uh, things do improve. And I hope that we can take away the right lessons that American imperialism is a disaster for the world and needs to come to an end. But thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I am glad to be slightly off my hiatus. I hope I can do more of these podcasts fairly regularly. And I look forward to hearing back from any of you in the comments on my social media. You know, you can get in touch with me at Brendan Davison on Twitter. Uh, also, check out my YouTube channel. I'm currently still on YouTube hiatus, but, you know, go back and check out my old videos. They're still up there. And if you'd like to see what I do and want me to see, want to see me do more of it, please consider donating to my Patreon. All the links will be in the description below. Thanks so much, and as always, solidarity. Solidarity.